and welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele, and I work out in the community in the Baton Rouge area. And I'm Joey Boudreau. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer. I oversee the Organ Recovery Division. And we are so excited because what has been happening lately, we once again have partnered with an LSU PR campaigns class in order to increase the donor registry here in Louisiana. So now we're at a point, Joey, we started asking them to help us where they ask us, what can we do? And as you know, from interviewing some of these past students, which we're so sad when they graduate, happy for them, but sad that we lose them as a partner, but they have some new ideas. They know how to reach those college students, and it's just amazing. So we have that in the KN, and we are working toward increasing that registry, which is spectacular. So they help us spread the word, which while they're doing that, you can help us spread the word as well. Absolutely. We want you to talk about us, talk about us to your friends, look us up on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app might be, and just listen. And look, we also post to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter pages. We're Donate Life Louisiana, basically. So check that out. But when we talk about things here on the podcast, you can see pictures of those who we talk about as well. And we'll keep you up to date with that LSU campaign. So we'll talk more about that. But on today's podcast, we will fill you in on some fun, fun events that are coming up that you may want to be a part of. It's easy. Absolutely. And we'll be talking in our recovery segment to Louisiana's first kidney and pancreas recipient. Okay, this is everything about that is fascinating. Awesome. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. Also a recipient paying it forward, which is pretty cool all in itself. And then we'll talk about in our technology segment how Facebook is playing a big part in donation. It is. We'll also honor a hero as we do in every podcast. Plus we'll take your questions and answers here on the Gifted Life Podcast. Everybody stretch, stretch it out, stretch it out. Tomorrow's a big, big, big day. We've been working all year towards this goal, and that is our fifth annual Rabelais Run for Life in Baton Rouge at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center. Now, no fear. If you hadn't signed up yet, you can meet us on race morning. But I just, I love race day because it is a celebration of life. But I love that these families come together all year. They work on their teams. They work on their team uniforms. It's just amazing. And some aren't runners, like I'm a supervisor, so I don't run or walk or any of that strenuous stuff. But so we know that the race is coming up. Normally it hits the first Saturday in October, but we start walking and then we start jogging and then we start running to where we can participate and possibly get one of those cash prizes. So it's just an amazing thing to develop over the year. And so tomorrow's the big day. That's it. I'm excited. I'm I'm excited. And so grateful for our main sponsor, and that's Paul Rabelais with the Rabelais Law Firm. He's an estate planning attorney who understands the importance of organ donation and works throughout the year to help us spread the word. He allows his public relations person to help us in those realms, spread the word, get teams together. So it's just an amazing collaboration between folks in the donation world, folks outside the donation world who see the importance and folks who want to help. So we have runners, we have families, we have friends, we have college students, everyone getting together. So we hope to see you out there. We got some great jambalaya. So for the fifth year, we had the Troxclair family kind of doing that. We have some things up our sleeve because it is our fifth annual. And uh, we're trying to blow you guys out of the water, you know, with fun. Absolutely. So it's going to be good. Right, so 
I know I you're trying to there. be out there. I know it's early, an early rise. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to run. We've got two Lopa runs this month. So I'm, uh, I'm—I've got myself into a little bit of a, a 5K. I'm probably at about a three or 4K at this point. <laughs> I'm trying to get myself to the 5K. I'm at a zero K. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, but I'll—I'll I'll definitely be there. It's—it's it's just a fun time, especially for as a, a Lopa employee mm-hmm. to be able to talk with some of the families and and be able to engage in that setting. It's just—it's a fun time for everybody. And I love hearing everybody's story from their perspective. So right. either a donor mom, recipient, donor sister recipient sister it's just amazing so if you want to renew yourself october 3rd at pennington biomedical research center um so i'm biased to that one because i'll I'll Mm -hmm. be there i work with these folks every day but there are so many things going on in october so if you can't make our race which i hope you can but if you can't make our race there are lots of other things going on and you can follow our calendar at donatelifela.org you can also check out lopa.org we just want to make sure you have all the information you can for where you are because we know some of you could be spread out across the state and we want you to get involved because it is easy you you get out there you get some energy in you and you cross the finish line yep and then Kirsten will be there taking a picture of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with those those professional pics. We love it. Sweaty pic. So check out our calendar. Get involved today. We have some pretty incredible news to share. I mean, you and I are sitting here in awe because back in 1990, what happened? In 1990, uh, we had our first kidney and pancreas recipient or transplant take place. And prior to that, kidney transplants were more of the norm, but pancreas transplant was more of an experimental thing. Mm -hmm. And it was that time where we had our first, it was done actually at Oshner, and we had our first kidney pancreas transplant (sighs) on someone who at the time they were thinking, well, it might work for a few years, you know. We are celebrating 25 years 25 years of success and we will talk to the doctor who performed the transplant and we will talk to the recipient but first we want to take you back back to 1990 we pulled a new segment of this groundbreaking surgery take a listen right now 43 year old charles b garner is in critical but stable condition at the hospital Janet Lawn is here with more on that story. Janet? Bill, they're calling it a success, and this is certainly an historic event here. But like kidney transplants, pancreas transplants are no longer experimental. They've been performed since the 1960s, but only in a few medical centers. However, within the past two years alone, 35 more centers nationwide have started doing the procedure. Now that Oxner's on that list, doctors there plan to transplant several more pancreases this year. The... uh kidney transplant is performed along with the pancreas transplant to simultaneously cure renal failure and free the need for dialysis as well as the pancreas transplant to release a person from the need for insulin. And while pancreas transplants can cure diabetes, only a small portion of the state's estimated 3,000 diabetics would qualify for this difficult six-hour procedure. We uh, reserve this for patients with uh, known history of diabetes of the insulin-dependent type, usually of juvenile onset, whose renal failure is due to the diabetes. Diabetics with kidney failure once on dialysis have a life expectancy of about 10 years. Doctors say this procedure today will give the patient, Charles Garner, considerably more time and a more quality life. 
He will not be restricted in his um, amount of uh, glucose he can consume and amount of fluids he can drink, which must be monitored very strictly when he is uh, in renal failure uh, complicated by diabetes. Uh, he will be able to uh, fill out an employment physical and answer the question, are you a diabetic, and say no. This pancreas transplant costs about $40,000, and while some insurance companies will cover that cost, the government at this point won't, based on the idea that the procedure is more life-enhancing than life-saving. But, Bill, down the road, doctors do hope that Medicare or Medicaid will cover this. Life-enhancing. That seems so... So odd to say that. Well, I think the government, as the doctor said today, are just not, is not quite ready to cover it. It's not a matter of whether it's worth it, just not ready to pay for it yet. Okay. Thank you, Janet. Okay, so now wasn't that amazing? That's, that's awesome. Seems ah, that was so cool. So 25 years ago. That was 25 years ago. So flash forward, quarter of a century, and now on the podcast live, we have Dr. Boudreaux. And Dr. Boudreaux, I'm wondering if you still look the same from that video 25 years ago. <laughs> Probably pretty much, Exactly right? the same. <laughs> exactly the same. In fact, I'm thinner. Even thinner. I like that. Um, thinner and younger. <laughs> we also have on the line Charles Garner, the transplant recipient. Hey, Mr. Charles. Hi. How are you guys? Good, good. Now, uh, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Boudreaux, if you could kind of take us back 25 years. I mean, 25 years of transplantation, which is what you're, you're continuing to do today. But can you give us kind of a, a fast timeline for how things have gone? Sure. Um, well, back then, there was no pancreas transplant program in the state of Louisiana. Um, this was the first one which we performed in the state of Louisiana and instituted the program at the Ochsner Clinic. Uh, then, uh, a few years later, we instituted a similar program of pancreas transplantation at LSU and also instituted the liver and kidney transplant programs at Children's Hospital and the liver transplant program at LSU as well. So it was at the early days when just a few programs were beginning. There were probably a half a dozen pancreas transplant programs in the country back then. And so it was in its infancy. We were still working out a lot of the technical details about how to actually connect up the pancreas and what was the best way to do it in different different ways. You could make all these different connections. Um, different ways to do the immunosuppression, different ways to do the organ preservation, all that was in evolution. And now we can probably say that pretty much uh, recipients are enjoying somewhere between an 80 and a 90 percent success rate. That meaning defining success is if you did 100 transplants today, a year from today, at least 90 of them would still be working. Um, I'm trying to remember, Charles, how long were you a diabetic prior to your transplant? Well, I got my transplant at age 43 and I turned diabetic at age 15. And back then, Doc, it was kind of considered experimental. Actually, I mean, not at that, Correct. not in 90, but, was, but just before that. It was not a Medicare-approved procedure. It was not an insurance-approved procedure. Every time we wanted to do one, it was a fight with the payors to try and get it approved. Uh, the other thing that we did that was really unique about this operation is that since it was a sort of a small club, there were not that many people. You only went to one or two places in the country to train to learn how to do this. And so um, what would happen is, by convention, we all agreed that every time we did a transplant, we would report our results to each other, and we set up an international, not a national, but a worldwide pancreas transplant registry. So anytime a pancreas transplant was done anywhere in the world, we knew about it, and we knew the outcomes and the complications. And we would meet once a year, and we would talk about it, and we would call each other on the phone and say, hey, I did this, and this happened. What do you think about that? It was a really an evolving time. Out of that data, from that registry, we were able to prove to the payers, including the government, that pancreas transplantation not only improves the quality of life, it extends life, 
and it prevents and ameliorates many of the complications of diabetes, such as blindness, neuropathy, heart dysrhythmias, strokes, and heart attacks. So it was truly a life-changing operation for many people, and besides being free of insulin, it also allowed them to enjoy a longer and fuller life. My goodness. So groundbreaking back then, and then look at how we've progressed over 25 years. Now, Charles, I want to ask you, because uh, folks always say, well, how long can one expect to survive, and do you thrive? And I think you're the best person to answer that question, because we're 25 years later following your kidney pancreas transplant, and you seem to be doing well. Well, uh, I still have my original transplanted organs. They have uh, stood me well through a lot of stressful times I've had um, in work, uh, marriage, uh, tax problems, and things of that nature. For Thanks to Dr. Boudreaux and the organ donor that uh, whenever I had the most stress or distress in my life, my organs worked the best. I never figured that out. <laughs> but it, but any, anyway, uh, life has turned out to be good. Uh, I had four children. Now I have almost seven grandchildren. Seventh is due in February. I have retired and uh, am helping other people, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, but yeah. uh, my transplants have stood me well to the point where I'm now 68 years old, and my, my last blood test was excellent. Ah, awesome. So I have to think that must have been a very difficult decision for you to make right. you know, in 1990 right. because, you know, again, the public kind of thought it was experimental and it was so, like Dr. Boudreaux had mentioned earlier, as such, it was you know, kind of in, in its infancy from a, a transplant standpoint. And so take me back to that decision that you had to make. And of course now, you know, hindsight being 2020, how great a decision that was to not only have the transplant, but have the transplant where you did and with Dr. Boudreaux as your surgeon. Well, let me go back to the point that uh, at the time when I went to the doctor for an annual physical and he told me that uh, my kidneys were failing, I disputed the findings. I was still very active. Uh, I played a lot of racquetball and jogging and things, and I told him he was wrong. Well, in a month, maybe two, I was on dialysis, and I hated dialysis. The uh, procedure or uh, uh, dialysis caused me to go from my fighting weight of 170 down to 140. It wasn't really a choice, a hard choice for me. I actually trusted Dr. Boudreaux, and it was never a question that it would fail in my mind, and it's a good thing because I didn't think about that sort of thing. It was something that I needed to do for my family, for my kids, and for myself, and it wasn't a hard decision. Now, speaking of insurance, an interesting side note, the day before I had my transplant, I received this special delivery letter in the hospital at Oshner stating that my insurance was canceled, and here is my last 12 months of premium, and they weren't going to cover my transplant. Oh, my goodness. So uh, it's a uh, understatement to say at that time, insurance and Medicare didn't much think mm. about covering that procedure. And of course, you went through it. And tell me about how, you know, your months and years after that, how much medication you took then and then how that might have changed over the last 25 years. Well, I actually talked about Dr. Boudreaux about my medication here last week or so. Uh, because I haven't really had a conversation with him in almost 25 years. 
And I told them that the medications they put me on originally, I have maintained those same drugs since 1990. And they're kind of, uh, the cyclosporin is kind of now uh, an older drug for transplant patients, but uh, I didn't want to change anything. And I have the philosophy that if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I uh, still maintain the, that, that same medication. It stood me well. That is something. <laughs> Dr. Boudreaux, I wanted to ask you about the procedure itself. We saw you kind of talking about it in that news clip, but has the procedure itself changed dramatically or over that 25 years? Well, a little bit of a evolution of the operation. Uh, Mr. Garner was actually, we were seeing him as a possible transplant candidate when we were in Galveston, Texas, where we first started doing transplants after finishing our transplant training in Minnesota, and we established the first pancreas transplant program in Texas there, and he was being considered as a candidate there, uh, and we had several transplants under our belt by this time, but then he found out I was moving to Louisiana. He said, well, I think I want to go where you go, <laughs> and he did, And but he ended up moving back to uh, back home to Texas and was followed by the program in Galveston where he originally started for quite some time. And, yes, the operation has evolved considerably. When we first started doing the pancreas transplant, the problem with the pancreas is that it's a double organ. It makes insulin, which is why you're doing the transplant. You need a new insulin factor. It's not designed for pancreatic cancer. That experiment was done in the 80s, and it turned out to be an abysmal failure because the anti-rejection medicines just allowed the cancer to come back with a vengeance. So the, the problem is you need a new insulin factory. But the pancreas also makes digestive enzymes. And back in those days, we didn't have good preservation, we didn't have as good antibiotics, we didn't have a lot of things, and so the enzymes start digesting away at the suture lines where you hook things back up and cause leaks and abscesses and all sorts of interesting complications that everybody was struggling with trying to figure out what to do because they would connect the pancreas back into the intestine, and so basically you're operating on an open sewer in an immunosuppressed person, and it was a really tour de force to try and get patients through that. So... A transplanter came up with the idea, well, if you hook the enzymes and the pancreas to the bladder, the enzymes go out into the bladder inert. They're only activated when they mix with the bile and the bacteria of the gut, and that sort of turns on, the, turns on the enzymes and they go to work. So if they go out into the bladder, it's sterile, goes out with the urine, and, and we can measure the amount of enzyme production in the urine. As long as there's a lot there, we know the pancreas is happy. And so when urine emulase production fell, we knew, oh, this pancreas might be suffering. We didn't have to wait till they were diabetic again and back on insulin to try and save a, a rejecting transplant. We could reverse the rejection in the early stages and save the organ. It'd be like waiting till somebody's back on dialysis to try and save a failing kidney transplant. Well, it was too late. The cow's out of the barn and the barn's on fire. So probably around that time in the late 80s, early 90s, the, the world was transitioning from hooking into the intestine to hooking into the bladder. And throughout the next 10 years, that's the way everybody did it. That turned out to have its own set of complications and problems. Uh, you lose a lot of excess fluids in addition to the normal amount of urine you make, and so you have to really drink like three gallons of water a day practically to keep up with the losses, mm -hmm. which is interesting change for someone using dialysis right. that's maybe allowed to have two cups of water a day when they're on dialysis. Right. So that was the thing. So we, we reversed it. We, we now figured out a better way to hook it back into the intestine as well as hook up the blood supply a little different way. So insulin is delivered into the same vascular system that it would normally be delivered by a normal pancreas in a normal position. Uh, so it, it allowed uh, for more physiologic reconnection, you might add. We, we, we put it back in the intestine now most of the time. I would say probably at least half the programs in the country 
now have gone away from using the bladder and gone back to using the intestine. But we have we have such new good drugs, we can use a lot less immunosuppression, so there's less risk of infection and leaks and all that stuff. And the organ preservation has gotten so much better that we don't have to worry about preservation failure, which was another thing that would cause the organs to fail and leak and kind of basically come apart. Right. Uh, so that's a long answer to a short question. Yeah, no, but that's a great that's fascinating answer. too and over the twenty five years. Yeah, and, and in a twenty five year span, if you think about it, Charles had his surgery before a lot of these changes, or I guess in the midst of a lot of these changes, and it's amazing that his still work just as good as the ones that we're transplanting, you know, last week and last year. That's it's just quite amazing that twenty five years ago his is still functioning. Uh, I was concerned for uh, uh, myself that maybe I've gotten this about five, six years ago. My my transplant's pretty old. How come it's still working? And I actually went and saw my doctors and stuff, and um, turns out that uh, once you reach a certain age of transplant, it seems like it continues on healthily, and I kind of lost my fear of it all of a sudden going south. There's a lot of data to that. And I'd like to answer this question because sure, a lot sure. of people want to know, well, gee, how long do these things last? Yeah. Right. It turns out the critical, time, the critical time is probably the first one to two years. If you get through the first two years without major complications, without a major rejection episode, the likelihood of the organ surviving the life of the individual is probably very high. It's a little bit like automobiles. It's not the year it was made, it's the mileage. If the organ has had a lot of hits from either injury, maybe in the donor pre-recovery, mm -hmm. or post-transplant with a lot of rejection episodes, that's the biggest thing we worry about. I am uh, taking or notes here. Or some other thing. That would really be the thing that hinders long-term outcome. Mm -hmm. And so, of the patients who get out past the first two, three, four, five years, their lifespan is expected to be pretty much like what their lifespan would be of the population of that age group. That's awesome. That is amazing. I'm, I'm taking notes because kind of I like what you cool said. Thing. Yeah, we're going to use this uh, in our in our community presentations. Uh, but Charles, it seems like you were you were paired with the right doctor. I'm sitting here looking at your picture uh, with your beautiful uh, grandbabies, all thanks to Dr. Boudreaux, his foresight, and all those people who helped to make life happen. Um, so I, I'm assuming you're a, a big advocate for donation where you are, right? Oh, I am. At, at one point... Prior to one of my uh, problems in life with uh, business, etc., I had tried to start a transplant organization down here in Texas, similar to the LOPA setup that you have, and uh, the IRS subsequently decided that I didn't need to be doing that, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was unable to pursue it. <laughs> I, am, I am very interested in uh, even helping LOPA as time marches forward and anything that I might be able to do. Oh, well, we will take you up on that. Um, I do want to ask you a question, um, if it's not too, too personal, but have you written the donor family? I know 25 years ago that wasn't the norm, um, but over these 25 years, um, that aspect, can you, can you tell us about it? Now, uh, the answer is no, because at the time when I was asking to uh, get the information for the family, that was discouraged. Now, this is 20-something years ago that I tried to do that. Right. And I think things may have changed uh, by now, but uh, uh, as I told you perhaps in an earlier conversation, I still think of, of the donor, and I, I uh, say thanks uh, 
for the, the good organs that I were, uh, was given. It's amazing. And Dr. Boudreaux, you know, sitting back from your seat 25 years later, um, what does that look like uh, to you and then moving forward? Well, you know, back then, because things were, I would say, we're still on the cusp. Transplantation certainly was not mainstream. And the big concern was protecting the donor's anonymity and protecting the donor family's anonymity. And we didn't want any, we didn't want anything to interfere with the donor family's post-donation sense of well-being and mm-hmm. grieving and all of the things that they needed to work through. And so the thinking was then, by people who think about these things and tried to figure, it's hard to imagine what another person is thinking. So, but in in an effort to act in what they thought was the best interest of the donor families, it was felt that there should be an absolute disconnect between the recipient and the donor family for at least for an extended period of time before the recipient would be allowed to attempt to contact the donor family. Or, in fact, that. As I recall back in those days, it wasn't even allowed. It was just mm-hmm. said, you know, thank you very much. Right. And I think now, now, of course, it is not only allowed, but in sometimes cases encouraged, depending on circumstances, where what would happen is a recipient wishes to thank the donor family. And so mm-hmm. what happens is they would write a letter, for instance, addressed to the donor family, which is sent to the organ procurement agency. The organ procurement agency will then contact the donor family and say, we have a letter from a recipient would you be interested in having it? And sometimes it's just knowing that the letter is there is enough for them to say, well, we really are not emotionally ready to handle that mm-hmm. much of a, of a um, stirring up of these old feelings again. But in other cases, that's, and that's enough for them to know that there's a grateful recipient. In other things, they say, oh, yes, we would really like to hear from them. And then sometimes one thing leads to another, and eventually they meet. And usually there's a lot of hugging and crying and exchange of stories, and uh, it's a very moving experience every time it happens. Well, you, sir, are a pioneer in the transplant world. I'm just sitting here just fascinated listening to you and to Charles's story, and we appreciate you guys taking the time um, to share that with us. And, and we hope that you'll come back again and again, and Charles, you continue to do well, and um, just continue to help us save more lives. I'd appreciate well, you for all the good work you do. Thank you, guys. We were talking to Dr. Philip so Boudreaux. Yes, Dr. Philip Boudreaux, really a pioneer in the transplant world, and Charles Garner, uh, kidney pancreas recipient, and this being the 25th year anniversary of that double transplant done in the state of Louisiana. Wow. My mind is blown, right? That's it. I know. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Okay, we have a pretty cool story that we want to share with you now. And Joey, this is close to us. We both attended some events with this guy who is super cool. But Mr. Doug Kostman is joining us now by phone. Hey, Doug. Hey, Lori. How are you doing? It's a pleasure to be with y'all today. Yeah, we thank you for taking the time. Doug is an organ donation advocate following his kidney transplant almost two years ago. Yeah, almost two years now, huh, Doug? Yeah, that's correct. It'll be, I, I believe it's the 23rd it's the, it's the last week of October 2013, so it'll be, it'll be two years this, this October, and uh, so far, so good. Yeah, and what I love about Doug is, um, you know, if we call, hey, can we come and meet you or whatever, yeah, but I may be on the golf course if it's a pretty day, all right? That's what I love to do, right? 
Exactly. In fact, it was a matter of whether we were going to do this today, whether I was going to be on the golf course today or tomorrow. (laughs) We pushed back our game till tomorrow so we could be with Kyle. Well, we appreciate that. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like this is a major inconvenience for me. I mean, this is a... Uh, this is something near and dear to my heart to try to get this message out there to the public any way possible. Now, we know that you're doing um, great now. You're a great advocate for us. You um, help us with presentations and, and different things going on in the community to help spread the word. But life always wasn't peachy for you, right? Exactly. It was um, in December of 2010, I had no idea I had gone to the doctor for something totally unrelated to my kidneys. And long story short, I was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease, which is a genetic disorder that basically uh, destroys your kidneys. And by June of 2010, I started dialysis. And that was, I equated that to being my other job. It was three days a week, four hours a session, uh, I did it Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and I did it early in the morning. It was usually done around 11 o'clock, but it pretty well wiped you out for the rest of the day. Um, I considered myself lucky that I had a disease and that affected an organ where there was a machine that could allow me to continue my life, but it definitely wasn't the same life that I had been used to before. Yeah, I'm actually a nurse. And I used to uh, work with a lot of dialysis patients and, and to hear them talk about it. Yes, it enables you to extend your life, but it's so difficult and taxing. I can't imagine what you were going through. Basically, on those days, they were just X'd out and, and no plans were made. Now, on the other days of, of no dialysis, life was pretty much so normal. And and for normal for him, I think Joey, you can relate. You were a huge, you know, like football fan. Baseball really get out there, and, right? And, and, yeah, and and and, give me, and like you said earlier, you know, if if I can find somebody to play with, I'm going to be on the golf course. That's right. Well, and I remember Doug was doing a presentation, and everything like from his timeline, he was like, I remember LSU was playing this, and then they <laughs> lost to this, and I was like, that's, okay, I got it, Doug. That's exactly big- how I remember things. <laughs> He's a big fan. And, well, especially especially with baseball. My uh, my my wife is from Omaha. I met her oh, wow. at the College World Series in uh, in in '96, the year of the the, the Warren, Warren Moore home run. Yeah. And, and then we, we got married. We got married the Friday before the Alabama championship game. That's the timeline. And so I have posters all over the city that I can remember my, my anniversary by. I love it. And we love Miss Pam. She And she gets emotional when she talks about your journey. But a lot of these sports activities and things, you would be with a friend, right? Right. Uh, the, the story goes, is, is I said I started dialysis in June of 2010. And this went until, uh, as we said, uh, October of 2013, and, and uh, one Tuesday morning, I was in dialysis, and I got a phone call from a, a friend of mine that a buddy of ours, Shelby Holmes, had been tragically shot the night before walking home. He had he had been out and was walking home, and somebody came upon him and, and just shot him. And so, you know, this was a, a shock 
and and we were were all pulling for Shelby to 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 come through, but unfortunately it, it didn't end up that way. There's not a period in my life where I I feel like that I didn't know Shelby. Mm-hmm. He was he's like always been there with all of us at all the tailgates, whether it was football, basketball, baseball, whatever. Shelby was just always there. He had he had interned and worked with the uh, with the LSU athletic department for a number of years. Uh, he had uh, helped out at the paper. He had, he was a McKinley High alum and had kept their records for years and years. Uh, was a statistician at all their games. Um, just you know, NASCAR, the Saints, and LSU sports was, was Shelby's life. Uh, you know, absolutely love those things. And everybody talked about part, just how nice he was, the big smile. Oh, just, like, yeah. Just, this is the guy that everybody aspired to be. And you can't say anything bad about the guy. I never saw in all the years that I knew Shelby, I never saw him upset. He was just, like you said, he had the most radiant smile and he always had a smile. He loved life and, and it was infectious. And I remember seeing that on the news um, following the shooting, and I just remember seeing that that smile. But then I also remember seeing your wife crying and talking about how Shelby in death helped save your life. And I was just, well, wow, you know, watching this from home. It was a, you know, it was a... The circumstance around it is, is a storybook almost. You, you couldn't write this. Once it was pretty obvious that, that Shelby wasn't going to make it, we were planning, all of us were trying to figure out how we could help the family and what, what could we do to do that. And Pam very much so wanted to, to get involved and help also. So we decided that we were going to open an account at Regions Bank to for all of us to make donations to help the family. And so Pam met Shelby's mom, Miss Dorothy, at the bank to set this account up so that we could all make donations. We had no idea what was going on at that time. We figured that they the family was planning the funeral and we were all preparing for what was going to happen going forward. And in conversation when Pam met Miss Dorothy at, at Regent, she was talking about how that they were the hospital was was taking care of Shelby and Pam didn't understand at first. Then it became clear that Shelby's family was going to donate his organs. Well, in conversation, Pam is telling Miss Dorothy about you know that I am doing dialysis. I'm on the transplant list and everything, and she's going. Well, they just asked me if I knew anybody that needed an organ. She goes back to the lake and gives them my name. So they start the process. I have no idea how long this is going to last, what's going on. I go to bed Thursday night. So Friday night, about 9 o'clock, we get a phone call. Can you be in New Orleans this evening? I said, we're on our way. Mm-hmm. So we load up. Pam is calling everybody, letting them know what's going on, and we head to New Orleans. Well, we've got a picture with us. Of Shelby, mm-hmm. Shelby from the Spanish Town Mardi Gras from from one of the previous years. So Shelby makes the the picture with Shelby makes the ride with us. We put it up in the room. Mm-hmm. Saturday morning, they gave me the final word that hey, it's to go. We're gonna we're gonna operate on you tonight, probably around eight o'clock, and we're gonna so 
we're going to get you ready to go from here. That was the night of the Alabama football game, and mm-hmm. that was the night that they honored Shelby at halftime oh, of the game. Goodness. So literally, they're honoring Shelby in Tiger Stadium right. when I am being rolled into the operating room in mm-hmm. Oshners in New Orleans to receive his kidney. And uh, the the that was a like I said that was a Saturday, the last Saturday in, in October. The following Friday was November the first, and that was when they held Shelby's funeral at the Centerplex where he worked. Uh, they it's the only room big enough to hold everybody mm. to to, yeah. to honor him then. And as you can imagine, I, obviously I'm in New Orleans at the hospital, but you know. Here we are two years later, and, you know, knock on wood, uh, all all indications are that, you know, the kidney is functioning fine, I'm functioning fine, and, you know, life is going on. I love it. I love it. And if you search online at any time and you type in Shelby Holmes, Doug Costman, you'll get to um, relive some of these stories. But um, what's spurred out of this, and you heard him talk about Spanish Town, um, so Doug, you know, longtime member, and they decided— uh, to honor Shelby, to promote donation, to get folks to sign up and to give back. So you really started paying it forward very early. Well, you know, I had made the decision when we were driving in New Orleans that, you know, if this did go forward, if this was successful, that I was going to do everything in my power to make sure that, number one, the world didn't forget Shelby Holmes, not that I, I thought they would, but just to make sure. And secondly, to help increase the awareness for organ donations. Anything I can do to educate the public on, on, on making this possible for other people to, to change their lives, I wanted to do. So when we came to this time last year and we were starting to gear up for the Spanish Town for, for 2015, we we're throwing banding about names of what who we were going to name as the King Queen Grand Marshal, and I had a friend of mine that had called me and said, "Hey, have you considered making uh, Shelby the King?" And I hadn't, and we hadn't, and, and I threw that threw it out at a meeting, and you know everybody was just, "That's a wonderful idea. Let's do it. It's wonderful." So, it was so good. I proceeded to I proceeded to get in touch with Shelby's mom Ms. to make Dorothy. sure that the family mm-hmm. yeah to make sure that the family didn't have any problem with this. Somewhere along this line, one of the first things that we do after the first year, right before the ball, is the uh, what they call the royalty brunch brunch that the the the, the women's auxiliary puts on. And somebody in the woman's auxiliary knew somebody or somebody with right. the hospital or somebody with LOPA. And this is how this circle has been, uh, you know, brought together of me getting in touch with them. It was one of our mm-hmm. hospital lifesavers. They knew LOPA. They knew Shelby's story. They knew you. Um, and it just all came together at the right time. We were in the right place at the right time. And you talk about Miss Dorothy. Um, whenever I, I chat with her and I said, um, you know, we're going to use uh, Shelby's picture, if that's okay with you, to promote donation. And she says, you wear the one of him in that white hat where he's smiling because that's mm-hmm. my charmer. And I love it. And she loves 
that you yeah. talk about him as well. Uh, but not only the brunch, which is fun, by the way, I, I enjoy the Spanish Town antics. But Joey, you got to experience a little bit about the Spanish Town ball. Oh. Uh, thousands of people have gone, and then we were lucky enough to um, get a glimpse inside. And you guys party. For a cause, it's really good. It's amazing, Doug, what you guys put on. I, my wife and I were, were both fortunate enough to attend, and, and I've attended many, many balls. You know, a lot of uh, different Mardi Gras balls, and we both talked about how this was the most amazing, most fun, just let loose. Everybody, it was such a fun event. But then at the same time, by you allowing us and you guys allowing Lopa to be part of the party and having everything in honor of of Shelby it was just a very powerful it was fun but it was a powerful event I, I just it was such an enjoyable thing and it was very nice meeting you I remember you know very vividly us meeting and, and hanging out at the table so really wanted to thank you guys for putting on such a wonderful thing you know especially with Lopa in mind this thing has snowballed way beyond anything we could even imagine when we made Shelby King. And so, you know, it, it, we always laugh that, that, that the parade and the ball go on in spite of us. And this one is definitely in spite of us. This has snowballed and become a, a, a great thing. And, I, and I'm happy to be able to tell the story anytime, any place, pretty much so. We know, and we appreciate you, and we uh, appreciate you continuing to celebrate Shelby's life. Thanks, Doug. Hey, it was my pleasure anytime. And hey, if I can put one more thing in there, like I always tell everybody when I get a chance to do this, if you're not an organ donor, please sign up. Please make a difference. Uh, trust me, you'll, you'll change somebody's life. I, I sat every day that I did dialysis in a room with 20 other people, and, you know, each, each and every one of them could, could be, have their life changed by, by somebody being able to, to donate an organ. And that's just the ones that can continue on. The other people that need other organs that don't have machines that can save them, you know, they, they don't get that second chance that I got. So if you can bring it within your heart to, to sign up when you go renew your license, check the box, become an organ donor, let your family know your wishes. Trust me, you will make a difference in somebody's life. DonateLifeLA.org if you want to sign up today. We appreciate Doug. And we also want to let you know that Shelby and Doug and their story, uh, they are on our donor wall of heroes over at Our Lady of the Lake Hospital on the first floor just past the chapel. So if you want to check in to that, DonateLifeLA.org. Today in our technology segment, Joey, let's talk about um, using technology to register to be a donor and then sharing your wishes with your friends and your family. Um, So you may have seen this in the news. Um, When you go to the OMV to renew your driver's license, change your name, that kind of thing. Um, we used to do it every four years when you renew your your driver's license. Well, this new law has changed that to six years in the state of Louisiana. Well, we, (laughs) which is good because I don't like the eye test. I'm just going to say it. Um, But we don't want you to wait six years to take action when it comes to organ donation, right? We want you to do it now. So we've been trying to come up with ideas to make it um, fast, um, efficient for you so that, hey, 
Let's do it and let's share it with everyone. So um, if you turn to Facebook, there's like a sign up now. I'm going to call it a tab. Mm -hmm. So when you sign up, it takes you directly to our registry where you put in your name, boop, 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 some little information, and bam, you're in there. So it won't put a heart on your license, but it'll put you as part of the registry saying that, hey, if I can help save lives, I want to do that. So that's awesome in itself. Also, if you go to DonateLifeLA.org, which we visit there frequently, but there's these huge buttons. Can't miss them. Not even you. All right, so one of them in this huge bubble will say registry, and then another one will say learn, and then another one will say promote. And if you click on promote, for example— It'll give you ideas on how to spread your wishes or let folks know, hey, I'm a donor. You should sign up, too. And so you can add it into your signature. So if you send a lot of emails, it could be Joey Boudreaux, Lopa Clinical, and then I'm an organ donor. Or you like you could add mm-hmm. that to your signature. And then uh, one of our volunteers has taken it one step further. And on her voicemail, if you have to leave a message, it says, um, I'm an organ donor. Are you? If not, sign up. You know, just really quick. It is always just getting the word out there, reminding folks. But we want you to take action today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Be part of our team. Help us save more lives. And it's as easy as joining us on Facebook or visiting DonateLifeLA.org. Do it today. Okay, guys, at this point in the podcast, um, we like to take a moment and we like to honor a hero, someone who has given the ultimate gift, the gift of life. And Laurie, in this podcast, we're going to honor Jeremy Cole. He was a young man, and I read his story from what his mom said, and it was so, so touching. Letters from mom, yes. Oof. She said, no matter how old he is, he's still my precious little boy. Mm-hmm. He was a very outgoing and lovable person and always has been. He never met a stranger. He had blonde hair, so blonde it was almost white, and the bluest of blue eyes with just a hint of mischief in him. He was also always doing things for people. It didn't matter what it was. She talked about how they lived next door to a older lady, and as a 10-year-old boy, he would go and help her with her groceries and, and help her mow her grass, and, and he always asked his mom, or a to-do list, just so he can help out around the house. He became a soldier. He joined the Army, and he was stationed at Fort Benning. And she says he was a handsome soldier. Following his years in the Army, he he worked offshore, and then he he said he wanted a, a trade, so he became an electrician. And then on his 36th birthday, it was July 11th, 2012, She spoke to him that morning and wished him happy birthday, as she had done many times before. She asked him what his plans were, and he said uh, that he was going to go have dinner with his best friend. They were going to be grilling steaks, and and they were going for a motorcycle ride. And uh, later on, she she felt like she needed to call him. And uh, in that that call, she said that uh, his last words were to her, I love you, Mom, and I'll see you soon. Mm. He had an accident, and then through his death, He went on to save many lives with his precious gifts of life. Mm, And I'm just looking at his picture, and you can see Jeremy's picture at lopa.org. And if you click on Faces of Donation, you can not only see Jeremy, but you can see other heroes from our area. You can read their story, so um, take the time to check that out. But at this point in the podcast, let's pause and say thank you to Jeremy Cole for the gift of life.
Joey Joe. Question and answer time here on the Gifted Life podcast. And this one actually came to me face to face. I was out shopping and one of my friends came up to me and said, okay, we just started this venture with a driver's ed school and we need help with organ donation education. What do I do? And I said, oh. That's right up your alley right there. This is some good stuff. Number one, we have a new partner, so I'm excited about that. But we have the tools that they need to be successful in the classroom, whether we show up or not. But we always love to be a part. Well, Laura, you can find that information, of course, on our Lopa.org page under our professional section. Yeah, there's a professional tab at the top of the page, and then you'll see these tabs, and there's a driver's ed page. So information that you need, links to videos that you can show that have the donors meeting the recipients, the conversations that they have, just amazing. Plus, you have access to the facts that you can bring up, have a discussion in your class. Also, you can request a speaker. So lopa.org slash speaker. While you're there, the closest community educator to you, we go in and we help you educate. We can bring a recipient or donor family if they're available at that time as well. Um, If you have any specific questions, send them our way, info at lopa.org. We are here to help. We have reached the end of yet another Gifted Life podcast, and we are so grateful that we are able to have these healthy conversations about organ, eye, and tissue donation. And we hope that um, you take some of what you learned here today and take it home share it with your friends, do your part to help make life happen. And it can be as easy as sharing something you saw on Facebook or talking about something we shared with you today. But we do want to thank our guests who helped us learn today. Absolutely. We first want to thank Dr. Boudreaux and Charles Garner. Not only thank Charles, but congratulate him on 25 years being the first kidney pancreas transplant here in Louisiana. Amazing. And just going strong. Amazing. 25 years later and thanking them for for telling us their story and, and kind of, you know, how things began here in the transplant world in Louisiana. True. And then lastly, I, I definitely want to thank Doug Kosman, not only for coming, you know, and, and sharing his story and the story of Shelby on the podcast, but also thanking him in allowing us, Lopa, to be part of his life and uh, in doing everything that he's done with us, especially through the uh, Spanish Town Ball and Parade. Yeah, and I'm just proud to be a part of it all as well. You see all these people coming together to make life happen. That is what it is all about. So if you want to join with us, you can. Info at lopa.org. We can walk you through. No pressure. We try to tell you what's going on in your area. If you can make it, we'd love to see you out there. Like tomorrow, we have the Robley Run for Life. We have these other events as well. Get in there. Talk to other folks about what's going on, what they do, whatever you're comfortable with. We want to use your, your strongest talents to help us make life happen. So let's team up today. We hope you have a good one. Thanks for listening here on The Gifted Life.